Welcome to the Business of Property podcast. I'm Simon. I'm Stuart. We talk every week about the reality of running property businesses. Stuart runs a portfolio of co-living properties with a six-figure turnover and also has a property investment consultancy. Simon has a number of buy-to-lets and runs Patma, which is a leading portfolio management software system and a source of property market insights. Before we get into this week's episode, I would just like to mention again, we are planning to start a property growth club. This will involve actually meeting Stuart and I. I'm not sure if that's going to attract people or repel people, <laughs> but, but just putting it out there. And we are currently just just trying to gauge interest and and get in touch with anyone who, who might be curious about this. So if you are such a person, please do send us an email, show at thebusinessofproperty.com, and just, just let us know that you're, you're curious about our, our property growth club, and we will send you more details as soon as we have them. Just a reminder, we are going to spend time with other property people, basically supporting each other. It's going to be a bit of a mastermind, a bit of coaching, all of the above, but we're going to work it through. But uh, as Simon says, just send us an email and we'll respond to emails just to give you a bit more detail. So today, we thought we would have a bit of a chat about HMOs, but but sort of more ideas around how they differ from buy-to-lets. So I, I am in the situation where I have only ever had a a buy-to-let rental property or portfolio of properties. And while I'm not personally thinking of, of branching out into HMOs, I think at the moment with the current mortgage rates and Section 24 and obviously current property prices, buy-to-let purchases are quite difficult to make work with, with finance anyway, with a mortgage. And one possible alternative to that might be exploring the world of HMOs, which are traditionally sort of higher profit and hence can still work in, in the current world. So we thought we'd have a bit of a chat about how someone might think about going from buy-to-lets into HMOs, because they, they are really quite different beasts, and th- there's a lot to consider as you do this. So I think, Stuart, as, as the HMO expert in the room, there's lots of different topics we, we could cover and probably will cover over this episode. But what, what do you think is the, the sort of biggest thing that jumps out at you as as something to be aware of if you've never done HMOs before? I think the first thing is that typically if you're used to buy to let, in my head at least, it can be a little bit set and forget because if people are signing contracts, ASTs for six months, minimum six months, typically, typically you're not going to hear much from that. Yes, you might hear that, you know, there's some mold in the shower or you know one of the you know the toilet doesn't work or or whatever you know so yes yes we're going to get those calls but typically you don't expect to hear much from tenants with hmos it's it's very different because you're you're now dealing with multiple people obviously these are houses of multiple occupation so you're dealing with multiple people and if you're dealing with that across multiple properties then you, you should expect to hear more yeah, you're, you're just multiplying everything up, aren't you? So rather than my, my one property with one tenant, I've got one property with four or five, six, maybe even more tenants. So yeah, it's just 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 a numbers game, isn't it? Multiplying things up. Yeah. And my, my immediate response to my myself when I talk about that is, well, but we, we still have agents. So there are people that, you know, they have a model where 
they'll still do what you do. They'll self-manage and they'll self-manage the tenants and they'll keep the 12%. Thank you very much. But of course, if we're, if we're building portfolios, if we're scaling, and the reason Simon and I are obviously talking about this because of Simon's preamble is, you know, how, how can we look to make money in a year like this year that's, that's coming? Well, we would look at HMOs because cash flow. So that, that's how we get onto it. So that's the first thing. I think just to be mindful that, you know, even if you've got agents, you're going to get those calls. You know, you're going to get the requests for new tumble dryers, for uh, leaky showers. Yeah. And th- this is just from today, by the way. <laughs> it's just my <laughs> list from today. Yeah. yeah you're, you're definitely making yourself a bit more of a job, really, aren't you? E- even if you do have a, a managing agent to, to pick up most of it, it, it's going to be a little bit more hands on at least. I wouldn't go so far as to say hands-on because, again, you know, my, my properties are more than 200 miles away. So hands-on isn't something I get. But you will be requested to at least triage. And that means if you're a very busy person already, sometimes throwing in re- these requests in can be a bit too much. But there are always ways, systems and processes to deal with it. You know, the first first agents I used, we set up a system whereby – I said, if anything costs less than a hundred pounds, just do it. Don't don't ask me. Just do it. That's changed now, to be honest. Because what well, once they spent a hundred times a hundred pounds, just just these little <laughs> things, you thought, hang on a minute, this is adding up a bit. <laughs> I was like, why are you spending a hundred pounds an hour every hour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ironically, as the business grew. And we needed a greater handle on the expenses. I actually wanted to see more. We still kind of have a, a, you know, I have a kind of a personal rule in play, which is generally if the, if it's a low figure, I'll, I'll, it'll just get a yes. But if it's not, we'll review it and cross quote, etc. But anyway, you know, not to digress into that subject too much. I've had a sort of similar approach with, with the refurb I'm currently working on. So through the process, various things are cropping up, and so each thing is a, I don't know, a new tap here or changing the tiles here, and oh yes, it's just a little bit and and things, but. If you don't do it, it'll stand out, and they say, "Yeah, it's only a small amount." And and yeah, then they 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 send me the, the changes invoice, and suddenly it's five thousand pounds. You think, how did that add up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and exactly, and that is exactly how it works. It's it's you know it's the dripping tap effect. It's a death by a thousand cuts, and they're the ones that catch you out. But anyway, so first thing to think about is obviously they I think in summary they're more noisy they're more they're going to be more noisy than buy to let that's the first thing the second thing is where to buy i think that's that's always a big question you know people talk about is like where should i buy and my my methodology was typically to look at university towns not necessarily for student accommodation but because you know in those kinds of towns that this way of living has already been created. There's, there's going to be a, for want of a simpler phrase, a cohort of people out there that have already lived in shared stroke co-living spaces. So it's not going to be a surprise to them. You're not bringing something new to market. No. And, and I think certainly recollecting my university days, there, there's always sort of a portion of people who go to university who then want to sort of stay in that area because they've become attached to it and things. So I think there will always be a little bit of sort of overflow of young professionals as well who have just come out of uni, but like the area, want to stay there. Perhaps they're going on to study a PhD or something, but but also some people going into to industry and just staying in the area. So, so yeah, I, I think that's that's a good, a good plan. And, and in simple terms, the local economy thrives on retaining as many of these students as it possibly can. And in a lot of student towns, you know, there will be 
within those towns or the satellite areas businesses that employ people that have been students in that town because it's it's the way that some towns actually you know is grow through the student populace that the population that they've brought through and you know are able to retain some of those so so yeah you know there is a there's a group of people that can do that so that that's something i look for now funny enough that has changed over the years so in the town i looked at the student population actually decreased over the last several years however since covid and certainly back end of last year beginning of this student numbers seem to be rapidly on the increase international students is increasing again so students is good i'm not necessarily advocating for student properties but i'm just saying that yes it, it can work so full disclosure my portfolio used to be two-thirds student one-third working professionals it's now the other way around and that was because covid we we just decided to flip what we were doing to to hopefully mitigate the risk and and touch with that's what happened so we're actually now two-thirds workers stroke professionals one-third student so once you found your your area and you you've actually checked and you think there is a market for hmo rooms as opposed to to whole property rentals presumably you just just go out and find a nice big house with lots of bedrooms or four four or five bedrooms and uh, and buy that and and there you go rent them out by the by the room is that, that how it works Stuart? and that is the end of today's episode because that's how easy hmo investing is <laughs> what do i do with all of my time um yeah sadly not and, and that leads us to the first question. And actually, I will do a flowchart, I think, one day, because that's how sad I am, like a little flowchart that we can share with our email subscribers. But the, the first question really is, existing HMO or buy a property to convert? That question will be determined by a number of different factors. Number one is, have you got the cash to buy a property and refurb it? Tick. But more importantly, and one that's higher up than that, is will you be able to buy a property and convert it to an HMO? And you'll have heard us talk about this before. Have a look through the episodes. But Article 4 direction is, is a direction which most of us agree with. It's, absolutely, it's, it's trying to protect local environments from becoming 100% populated by HMO properties. So something we agree with. So that will determine how easy or not it is in your area of choice to to buy and convert. If your area is Article 4, under Article 4 direction, it will be very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to create new HMOs. So, and again, I'll just, just be clear on that because sometimes we hear no and we think it's it's impossible. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but it can, it can be near as damn it. And if that's the case, then you will have to buy an existing HMO property. The good news on that side is that what you will find, certainly this year, I would imagine, is a lot of landlords that are looking to offload properties, particularly those that that are fed up. And, you know, Simon and I talked at length in the last two episodes about buying your personal names. And what I do think is, you know, the, there's a lot of landlords that are just tired with the, with the amount of regulation that's coming to the market, particularly those landlords that maybe have one, two or three, didn't really grow it any further. So... There will be properties out there that just need some TLC, which you can upgrade quite quickly. So, so that that's kind of again a snapshot view of how I would approach it. Is just look at it if it's if it's in an Article Four, what's the market like for existing HMOs? If the, if that's quite dead, then it may not be a great area. You might need to widen your search, and that's also something you can do. Just maybe rather than looking in central town, just widen the search a little bit further to a non-Article Four direct 
area and just have a look for hospitals, businesses, you know, is there an Amazon distribution center nearby? You know, what we're not looking for is what you might look for if you were buying buy to let, which is, you know, is there a school nearby is, you know, because those things are less important to people in HMOs, co-living spaces, because typically they're they're going to be single. And I say typically because we do have a number of couples, but typically they'll be single, possibly couples, but rarely with children. Yeah, I think children in, in an HMO environment is is probably asking for trouble. So one of the sort of common questions or, or thoughts around HMO is whether you end up with ensuite or shared bathroom facilities. I mean, obviously, the kitchen facilities are always shared and there's only a shared lounge as well. But the bathroom facilities, you, you can go either way. And do you, do you think it matters particularly or do you think you have to sort of play that by area and, and the, the local market? Well, I, th- I always put myself in the shoes of a tenant, regardless of what we're doing. And I think ideally, if you were a tenant, would you want your own bathroom? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't have to, you know, run across the hallway, you know, with a towel wrapped around you, whatever it may be. So, yes, we'd, the, the, the aim would always be to have an HMO with en suites or to convert it to have en suites. And that serves two purposes. Number one, I believe, you know, you're, you know, for, from a from a business perspective, that means you're going to get higher room rates. And from an occupancy perspective, it means you're much likely to be occupied more of the time. And if there are a lot of other HMOs in the area, then you know that, you know, hopefully you're, you know, you're one step above a number of them because you've now gone above average. The, the, the caveat that I always apply to that, and I certainly do when I'm doing my own or with other people, is to just quickly do the calculation of what that would cost me if I had to add an ensuite and the works that go around that. How quickly would that pay back? So if if an average, I'm just plucking numbers, but if a room rate was a hundred pounds and an ensuite room rate was 150, obviously we're making an additional 50 pounds. Now, if it costs me five grand to to to, to build that ensuite, obviously it's going to take me a hundred weeks to make that money back of that rent. So that's two years, just you know, to, to break even on that additional expenditure. Although that is assuming you can actually fill the room without the ensuite. And of course, I, I think, as you said, there's, there's so much nicer for tenants. And if, if the market is sort of expecting ensuites these days, perhaps you're actually saying, yes, I get £150 a week for, for a room with an ensuite. Or maybe the alternative is to get £0 a week for a room without an ensuite because no one wants to rent it. Well, I've never experienced that. I've never experienced a room where you 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 get no one that wants it. And you know, uh, it's it's a good question. And one day we'll actually work out that how many en suites we've got in the portfolio because we we do have a lot. I've got one one property with, with thirteen rooms. They're all en suite. But again, off the top of my head, I'd probably say about a third of it probably isn't en suite. Probably actually maybe more. But uh, I, I will have to have a look into that actually. But Touchwood, we are 100% occupied. So for me, the question is numbers. And typically what will happen, and this is where you're getting properties from other landlords, is that those numbers may drop and that's the difference. So you might get £100 for a non-en-suite, but over time that might get eroded because if the market is improving. So it might be that you have to take 95 or £90. And, you know, £5 per week does make a big difference, obviously, to income. So yeah, in terms of our model, we always want to go for the top because it's uh, it's safer. It's safer at the top if you've got a premium model. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so we've we've chosen our area. We've 
decided that we're going to go for a, a pre-existing HMO, but we're going to give it a bit of a uplift, maybe put some en suites or something. And we've got our property ready. I'll put ready in air quotes there, but because I know what's what's coming next. <laughs> what what do we actually need to think about before we can start letting tenants in? Well, at the time of purchase, you, you need to make sure that the, all of the paperwork is relevant. And, and that just means that the property you're buying has had a license, an HMO license, and where necessary, has planning approval. Now, this varies council on council, but in some councils, both things are required, but both very independent of each other. So don't think for a second that just because you've got an HMO license on a property that it's had planning approval or vice versa, because unfortunately, councils just don't have that dialogue between themselves. You know, typically, you know, for most councils, if you've got five or five or more tenants in a property, then that is considered a licensable HMO. Again, councils differ. So just look up, you know, for example, Manchester have several different councils in the same area. They're, they're, they may have very little differences between how they operate. So it's always good to check. But yeah, so for us, for example, when something's been used as an HMO for more than, at the moment now, it's like 10 years, I think we can just get a certificate of lawfulness that says we can use it as an HMO, and we also get the HMO license. So, and also, just a point to note from my experience is that HMO licenses aren't transferable. So when you buy your property from Mr. and Mrs. Smith, unfortunately, you don't just get that license. Oh, no, because the council has the, uh, the opportunity then to uh, charge you now to to create a new license and I'm, I'm sure it's not just a money play i'm sure there's some very specific reasons why they do that oh that they have to vet you as a, a responsible person or something i think don't they as part of the, the licensing process i'm sure they do i'm sure they do so that's the um so that that's the initial paperwork and, and if all of those things are in play then uh, and also you know you need a license as soon as somebody goes in so as soon as someone is in the property you need a license at that point uh, as long as you've applied for one, it's okay. You don't need it in your hands. You need to have applied for one. And and really, that's kind of like the administration side of it with the council. And and then really, it's over to who's going to take care of that property for you? you know, who's going to look after it? I, I wonder if I might interject slightly. Although having said that, may, maybe, maybe you would do it the other way around. So I, I was thinking that well, as if you're setting up a buy-to-let property, you've, you've got some compliance things to think about. So you've got to have a gas safety certificate if there's a gas supply. You've got to have an EICR, so an electrical safety certificate. You've got to have an EPC before you can, can rent anything out. But that's pretty much it for, for buy-to-let. And and I think HMOs have some extra requirements. I mean, obviously, we've, there's licensing, which we've talked about already. But that, that's not the only extra thing for, for HMOs. And, and I was thinking of sort of Perhaps you'd do that before you got an agent or someone looking after it involved. But but you mentioned them earlier, so maybe maybe they would actually help you with some of those compliance bits. So how how could that work, and what what are those extra compliance requirements? Yeah, it's a good point actually. I tend to get the agents involved. Even sometimes I got them involved when we'd literally only just started knocking a wall through, because what I want them to do is start marketing the property as soon as we can. And particularly if, we, if it's a, a big redevelopment, and when I say big redevelopment, I just mean everything's going to be brand new, then they can start getting people interested before we've even, you know, because some people might be looking two months in advance of when they're looking to move. However, 
you're, you're absolutely right. The agents can also help with all of the above because they might have the contacts. So to do the standard things, gas safeties, electrical installation, and so on. You've also got the pat testing for all the electrical items in the property. The one that, that kills me every time is the fire risk assessment. Again, in multiple properties, if you've got an also emergency lighting. So we have that in a number of our properties. That's an ongoing one. In fact, in some student properties now, some of them, we have to pay for a weekly smoke detector test. And, you know, that might cost £5 per room. I'm trying to remember. five might cost £5, sorry, £5 per property per week. And at first, £5 doesn't sound bad, but then you times that by three and you times that by 50 and, it, and the price suddenly goes up. So, you know, there's all of these little things that we need to think about, particularly in the multi-let properties. And, you know, they're all there to protect us. And this is all compliance. But the, the point you're making is that also that, you know, the level of compliance has, you know, raised, I would say, doubles. And that's probably one of the, the biggest drags on an HMO portfolio is the amount of compliance that, that has to happen. And, you know, the thing is, you, you do a fire risk assessment. And of course, you're not just going to pay for the assessment. Guess what comes out of the assessment? All of the things that they think you need to do whether it's replacing fire blankets in a kitchen, whether it's um, fire the right fire extinguisher, whether your you know emergency or, or your fire alarm system is a is a grade D versus what it should be a grade C in this property, it's it's honestly endless, and and there's a myriad of things that you're going to have to pay for. So, is a big one to be mindful of. But again, if, if you've modelled things out, you should, and you're capturing these costs, you should be able to see yourself making a profit speaking of of costs that that's something else that that varies very very much between buy to let and hmo as much as in buy to let the the tenants are responsible for pretty much everything maybe you might pay the service charge if it's if it's in a flat or something like that but apart from that tenants handle it all they they will pay for the phone line they will pay for the gas the electricity and the council tax, whatever else. Maybe there isn't anything else. But anyway, uh, in an HMO world, it's very different. And hopefully anyone going into this will have factored this into their their financial forecasts and things. But it is is very much something to be aware of, isn't it? And you you have to include all of this in your financial forecasting, but you also need to be aware of sort of managing some of this with your tenants. So I'm particularly thinking of, of utilities here because while you're paying for them, you're not actually in control of their use at all. So things like heating or cooking or washing clothes or whatever else, your tenants can can use your utilities that you're paying for at any time for these things. And do you, do you try to uh, sort of manage that at all? Or, or do you just say go for it tenants all yours yeah and i think that's probably the of the of all of the elements that is up there with the biggest uh, is is controlling the energy usage and it's also important to say that, that the, mis- the the model we've got which is all bills included isn't the same model in every area so i know i've worked with other investors that are in other areas in the southwest where actually the tenants pay bills so they pay similar room rates but the, t- the tenants pay bills and uh, yeah, hopefully <laughs> one day that'll be true for us. But 
of course, it's not a free for all. We've spoken about it before. There are things you can do. You're never going to be in complete control, but you can use systems that we've spoken about before. I think it was called an Inspire or a Timer stat. These sorts of systems mean that there's limitations on usage. Your heating can only stay on for two two hours at a time, for example. Someone actually has to get up and turn it off, which is great, you know, because it shouldn't be on during the night, you know, that sort of thing. And we do have caps, and we spoke about this before. You know, I'm working closely with the agents. We've just got into a, a position where we are now getting meter readings every month from every property. And of course, as your portfolio grows, that gets more and more difficult. And as I've covered before, the reason some of these things we don't do, it's just because it's really complicated. It's it's simple, but not easy because you're talking about getting out and doing meter readings in all of your properties every month and inputting these readings, getting those readings measured to look at usage and then going back to a tenant and saying, right, you had an eight pound usage allowance, which is what it was. You know, you have an eight pound usage a week and we have to calculate, you know, did you use your 40 pounds this month or has it gone over? And in truth, and I've been very candid with the letting agents on this, because they say, look, if you let us know what your cap is, we can review it. And I said, look, to be honest with you, I just don't have the time. So right now I'm going to bite the bullet. But the difference is, is that we are very close to our costs. So I'm very close to all of the costs. And, you know, as, as an agent said to me, said, look, at least, you know, I know every single day what's gone in, what's come out. Some landlords don't, don't look at that. And wouldn't have any idea. So it's, you know, it's something to be mindful of. And if you're going into an all bills included environment, then I'd work very closely with an, a, a, you know, an agency or a provider, energy provider, where you can get some consistency in cost. Otherwise, you can't plan. And so it's a it is a really important one. And like you say, that you know, you you haven't got, you know, I would say the tenants have eighty percent of the control of that versus twenty percent. But what we can do is manage it. And monitor it but again that's not easy it's really not yeah yeah uh, another area of, of cost that you might have with an hmo that you don't with the buy to let is maintenance of the of the shared areas i know quite a lot of hmo providers actually provide cleaners to, to go in and, and sort out the shared areas once a week or once a fortnight or something is that something that you find is required or or do you think that it is possible to, to run without that? We do run a few properties without that. In fact, to be honest, most of our properties run without that. The bigger the property, the more of an issue I think it is. So, for example, we have a 12-bed where my company pays for the cleaning of that every month. And, and actually, we've got a good relationship with the cleaning company. So it's twofold. One is I just want those communal areas. It's got two kitchens, you know, lots of stairs. What that ought to be cleaned at least once a month, because I've, you know we've we've seen the state some of it can get into. And number two, the cleaning company can also give me intel in terms of what's going on. You know, like uh, I remember that the first month I just said, "Can you just let me know of anything you see there?" You know, I'm not not looking for spies, but just anything that I might need to address. First month, oh, bin in the kitchen's overflowing. They look like they need a second bin. Now, as simple as that sounds, it, it might just be that the tenants just don't do it because. It, you know, they just haven't got the time or they just don't see it's important. Whereas for me, it is really important because I'd rather rubbish not hanging around. And of course, it has an impact. So it might be fine for 10 tenants, but there'll be two tenants in there that might have stayed longer, but just go, oh, we can't be bothered to say anything. And this place is, you know, it's turning into a dump. So, you know, it's little things like that. So cleaning, 
the truth is we don't do it as much as we should. I actually do want to do it in more properties. And my advice would be where possible, particularly in f- yeah, five or six beds or more, you you want to be getting a cleaner just for the maintenance of your own house. And, and you know, that's the other thing, which given the limited time is maintenance. You, you know, we've had lots of learnings on that in terms of just getting someone around once a month to do all the little bits, look at the gutters and that kind of thing. Because typically if you're looking at HMO properties, you're looking at bigger properties, as, as stupid as that is to say, but you're looking at bigger properties, typically they're going to be older. So what can we do in advance before it's going to cost us a lot of money? But, you know, the benefit is the cash flows are better, but it is, it's, it's going to be more of a challenge. But, you know, in terms of my sort of final point, what, you know, I've, I've worked with a couple of people and, you know, when they've talked about HMOs, I asked them what, what they currently did and they had buy-to-lets and some of them might have been earning, I don't you know, 400, 500 pounds per buy-to-let, which, as you say, they're not worrying about multiple tenants. They're not worrying about bills. They're not worrying about all the things that I'm worried about. And I just said, do you need to think about it? I mean, like if, for example, if, if an HMO was going to net out at 750, would that extra 50% of net profit be worth it? And that's, that's always something to be thought about. However, in the, in the, in the climate we're currently in more often than not, clearly the, the HMO cash flow is going to trump buy to let cash flow, depending on the area. And depending if the challenge, as we know, is getting buy to let to work right now because of the if, if you're going to get a mortgage. If you're a cash buyer, different different state of affairs. But if you're a mortgage buyer, then it's going to be more and more challenging. Indeed. And on that bright note, it's time for us to finish. <laughs> so thank you very much, Stuart, for sharing all that fantastic HMO knowledge. If you think there's anything we've missed, if you've got a, a question about HMOs or anything else property related, in fact, please do reach out to us, get in touch. You can reach us on at bizofproperty, that's at B-I-Z of property on Twitter. Or you can email us, show at thebusinessofproperty.com. Stuart and I will be, be very happy to, to read any any questions and, and either answer directly or answer on, on a future episode. You can also visit thebusinessofproperty.com for all of our past episodes and show notes. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Bye.